0: It is a magnificent privilege that we each have this Lord's Day afternoon to come together on an occasion such as this one. So blessed indeed we are to not only have the capability, but with the disposition of mind to do so, and the character of a desire to come together with those of like precious faith and to adore the great God of heaven and express to Him the deepest thanksgiving of our being as we have done so already in prayer and in song. And as we open up beautifully honestly and fairly, the character of his word, and to let that touch our lives and to aid us day by day to come to know him even better, and that we may serve him more pleasingly and also more wonderfully throughout the course of our sojourn here upon earth. We have, of course, for several weeks now been involved in a series of lessons on the Sunday evening occasions from the book of Revelation. Our theme and goal has been to rightly divide this book in context with the 65 that preceded it, And to use the lessons obtained therefrom, not only to aid us to appreciate the history surrounding the book, but to know the vast number of lessons that can be used day by day by us to help us in our sojourn under the banner of the cross of Christ. We shall continue that lesson, that series of lessons tonight, by looking at a lesson entitled, as you can see, The Dragon and War in Heaven. We come to chapter 12 in our study tonight, although we shall commence the study by briefly concluding chapter 11. And along that line, might I remind you of some of that which we have already seen most recently in our study. In particular, we notice carefully that chapters 4 through 11 have been surrounding the idea of that seven-sealed book. Quite often it has been noted that if one were to divide the book of Revelation and make consideration of its contents... The second major division of the book would be chapters 4 through 11, in which all the events surround the loosing of the seals and the trumpet judgments that follow the opening of the seventh one. Most recently, we noted the sixth trumpet judgment and its conclusion, but that brings us to the study tonight, which we will look at verses 15 to 19 first of chapter 11, and notice the finality of the seventh trumpet judgment. All the while, that will quickly lead us into a grand appreciation that chapter 12 will begin a new section to the book, and that new section will take us all the way through chapter number 20, so almost to its conclusion before we finish that fourth major section. Along the while, we also saw in chapter 11 two dramatic witnesses. These were standing as tremendous pillars in defense of the character of God's truth, And we learned the identity of those witnesses. One was the church, the beauty, the power, the lasting influence of that great body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The other, the sacred word of God itself. Both of which, even as we've noted already tonight, stand as unmovable anvils and pillars that man certainly can't move or tamper with. All he must do is humbly bow in submission to the sacred contents thereof and let that guide and direct his life, knowing that indeed the pathway to heaven is paved by the character of the Word of God. Finally, one other comment before we get started. We saw that the historical significance of those two witnesses carried us directly into the Reformation movement and beyond, as we saw the lasting influence, finally, of a return to pure and simple Christianity as it was unfolded and taught many, many centuries prior to that in the days of the apostles. That will be significant since we shall revisit, at least in part, that same idea tonight. But perhaps enough is said on that account. Let us then turn and read verses 15 to 19 of Revelation 11, And thus we'll return and revisit some of the concepts therein as we look at the seventh and final trumpet judgment. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty. Which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants the prophets, and to thy saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of the testament. And there were lightnings, and voices, and thunderings, and an earthquake, and great hail. With that observation, we notice that chapter 11 is drawn to its conclusion. And it was preceded in verse number 15 by, again, the initial statement that the seventh angel is sounding. We have noted now since the beginning part of chapter 8 that these angels, as they were sounding, there were a total of seven of them. Four of them sounded very quickly. And the very last verse in chapter 8 reminded us that there were three woes, one for each of the three angels yet to sound. It has now taken us some two chapters for the two angels to complete the fullness of their sounding. And now the third and final one in that set of three also sounds and isn't it wonderful to listen to what takes place. First of all, again, would you note with me verse 15. There were great voices in heaven. And isn't it remarkable to consider the triumphant character of what those voices proclaimed? Specifically, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever You and I have noted throughout the course of the book that the Roman Empire, and its opposition to the saints, in its opposition to Christianity, presented an obstacle to be overcome. And God forcefully proclaimed that it would be overcome. We saw several instances earlier where first Rome fell in 476 AD and then Constantinople in 1453 AD. The entirety of the Roman Empire had come to dissolution and to its end. But then we notice that here is a voice of triumph. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. We are seeing a tremendous glimpse of the end of time. Here, John, by the purpose and character of his revelation and what he's made known to us, has leapt forward until the finality of all matters. The kingdoms in all shall be subsumed under the greatness of our Savior, Christ Jesus." Are we not told in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, if we specifically remember verse 11, on that marvelous and majestic occasion, every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You you and I know well that there are many kingdoms of men upon the earth today who are not specifically interested in the matter of Christianity. They fly beneath a different religious banner. The matters of Christ and of the gospel, of the purity of the church, are not only uninteresting to them, they actually will wage war against it. But let us all appreciate very thoroughly the fact there shall come a day when every knee shall bow at the foot of Christ, appreciating his ultimate greatness not only in this universe, but in all things past, present, and future. Christ shall be above all and in all. The fullness of what John here reveals to us only deepens when we notice what comes next. We notice specifically that in verse 16, the 24 elders that we first encountered in chapter 4, these, we are told, fell upon their faces and worshipped God. The proclamation that in verse 15, that all has been taken and given to Christ and He rules over all is such a dramatic event, so powerful in its scope that these elders cannot help but applaud the praise, the adoration of God, and they fall in worship. But they do more than that. For in verse number 17, we are given part of what they proclaim. They first give great honor to God Almighty as the eternal God, past, present, and future. And in addition, as that verse closes, to the great reign, R-E-I-G-N, which he is able to appreciate and to extend by virtue of his Son... And then would you note with me specifically verse 18, the nations were angry. Furthermore, thy wrath is come. That refers to God's wrath. On whom shall ultimately the wrath of God be poured out in its finality? Wasn't it Paul who in the opening chapter of the second Thessalonian letter simply said, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels into flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power." There shall be a final pouring out then of the wrath of God and, of course, justice upon those who've refused the saving power of his Son, who've turned their back on the blood of the Christ. All the while we notice, though, that there's more here. For we also see that the time of the dead, that they should be judged. Indeed, we shall again see later in Revelation 20 the fact that the book shall be opened, the tremendous judgment described on that occasion, those who are found righteous, of course, ushered into eternal life, the blessed place described in Revelation 21. But however, just prior to that, we notice that there's a description of those who, like Satan, shall be cast into an eternal fire, of, uh, lake of fire and brimstone. Those points recall to our mind in verse 18 this. This judgment will involve reward, verse 18, unto the servants like the prophets and like the saints, and to those that have feared the name of God. However, notice that those that destroy the earth, and that word in the Greek means corrupt, so those who bring corruption upon the earth and defile that which they've rightly given to be stewards of, we're told that destruction shall be their end. That is to say, a matter of judgment or condemnation to be brought upon them. All the while, we notice that the chapter closes bountifully but also majestically in verse 19. The temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the Ark of the Covenant. I use that last word very carefully because that's the one the American Standard uses. And that takes our minds so quickly by rushing forth back to the days of the Old Testament. When Moses and the Israelites were given information about the construction of the tabernacle in the most holy place, the central piece of furniture, in fact the only one present by itself, was the Ark of the Covenant. Upon its top was the mercy seat with the cherubim with outstretched wings facing each other. Here John says, When the temple of God was opened, that's what I saw we begin again to see that that diagram and that model of the tabernacle in the Old Testament was not just mere triviality. The sequence and the structure was eternally significant. In the very same way that that mercy seat was signifying the very presence of God himself, Exodus 25, we see here that those saints, those who are found righteous, the small and great, shall be in the very sublime presence of the God of heaven forevermore. Isn't that what we all look forward to? The very wonderful opportunity and blessed privilege of being with Him, our God in heaven, forevermore. And with that, the curtain closes on chapter number 11. We have seen in all of it, of course, a number of ideas. And as these seals have been loosed and opened one by one, we've been noted, of course, of the history of the circumstance but time and again reminded that the fate of those who oppose God is not pleasant. In fact, it is terrible, and it's awful at the very end. Thus, we are urged time and again to submit to him and to follow him lovingly, honestly, and forthrightly throughout our days upon this earth. As the chapter closes, several physical things are mentioned that remind us of the greatness of this occasion. It's no small matter to think about what will transpire at judgment when every soul who has ever lived will stand before the God of heaven and receive an eternal sentence, either an eternity in hell or an eternity in heaven. It will truly be a fantastic occasion for those who've made preparation. But words, in fact, fail us to describe how awful it will be when those realize there's never another chance, and I've been found wanting. Daniel 5, verse 23. With that said, we might look one more time at a picture that we looked at last week. I drew attention on that occasion to the two witnesses standing left and right, but we did not draw attention to the scene at the very bottom. Perhaps you can note that with me and see that that's supposed to be a replica or an image reminding us of the Ark of the Covenant that was present in that tabernacle of ancient days in the Old Testament where indeed the presence of God on the mercy seat met with his people. You and I can look forward to also the grandeur of being where God and his presence is with us forevermore. And Revelation 21 will give us a deeper description of that when we arrive at that beautiful chapter. But for right now, let's continue our study tonight by looking next into chapter number 12. As you notice with me, chapter 12, perhaps as you noted in reading, reads rather differently in the sense that we seem to be beginning a new section, a new discussion, for in fact we are. Chapter 11 has drawn to a conclusion this central section of the book. Chapters 12 through 20 will be a major section to follow. As we open this section, I would ask that you first read with me, beginning in verse 1, and let's read the first six verses of Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and it cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. In our description of reading this, there are so many questions that without question flood our mind. Who is the woman representing Who is the child representing? Who is the dragon representing? Time and again, we would face the question of, we must appreciate, if we can at all, what these represent. In a book of symbolism and figurative natures, this one is, we expect that they have some significance. They have a meaning. And if we are to discern the thrust of chapter 12, we would need to ascertain as nearly as we can the meanings of those three central figures, at least to this point. It would seem that with a bit of detective work, we can certainly piece together two of the three with no trouble at all. There has been a great deal of discussion with respect to the third one, but we shall do our best at uh, at revealing it or unraveling it as nearly as we possibly can. As we begin to make note of that, let's first retrace the scene if we could. Notice that the word wonder is used in verse 1. John sees this wonder in heaven, and it's a woman. We notice immediately that she's clothed with the sun, and the moon is beneath her feet. Furthermore, as the verse closes, upon her head is a crown of twelve stars. We immediately gain the appreciation that this woman is powerful. After all, the moon's beneath her feet. As verse 1 describes, she's clothed with the sun. That indicates brilliance and radiance, We might remember that on one occasion, Jesus being transfigured in Matthew 17 in the brightness of the sun is as if he were appearing on that occasion. But not only that, the scene quickly changes in verse 2. For as glorious and as mighty and as powerful as she is, she's pregnant. And furthermore, she's pained and travailing in childbirth at this time. It is a rather interesting scene indeed as we can picture or at least imagine the thought of that. But let us notice furthermore that immediately there's another wonder. Verse 3, this wonder informs us that it is a great red dragon, seven heads as we're told in that verse and also seven crowns upon his heads and ten horns rather oddly. But as we quickly see, this particular great red dragon in verse 4, furthermore is such that his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And amazingly enough, this dragon was waiting for the lady to give birth to the child, and the dragon's desire was to devour, to kill, to slay, to eat the child. A rather amazing scene, wouldn't you say? But we quickly observe that in verse 5, she did give birth to the child, but the dragon did not consume it. The dragon did not devour the child, but rather, verse 5 informs us, this child was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and immediately the child was caught up unto God into to his throne. This opening saga of the chapter finishes in verse 6, for this woman, following giving the birth, we're told she flees into the wilderness, where, in fact, she would have a place prepared of God for her, and this remained the case for some one thousand two hundred and sixty days now to say all of that brings us rather interestingly to wondering about the fullness of this perhaps a picture would be a good way to start this is an artist's rendition if you can make it out at least about first a dragon and this is the dragon itself with a in fact a large number of heads seven of them total there's a total of ten horns. Perhaps you won't be able to count them from where you are. And notice that this dragon has here at its tail a third of the stars of heaven, casting them, in fact, to the earth. And here is the woman, and she is at the point of giving birth to, the, to, to this man-child. If we could revisit just briefly some of the scenes that we've seen so far, we are again at the point of asking, what does this mean? Who is the woman, who is the child, and who is the dragon? If we could answer those questions, then we would have many answers about the opening parts of this chapter. Fortunately, two of them are rather straightforward. Let us, in fact, look at some of the details that we can state. If we might begin so, what about the woman? We notice one thing rather interestingly. The woman does give birth to the child. If we could identify thus the child, we would be in good position to have a better opportunity to identify the woman. With regard to the child, verse number 5 is a monumental statement. I would ask you revisit that verse with me and let's read it again. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. The reason that particular verse is so so significant is because that's a quotation from the Old Testament. That's Psalm chapter 2, verse 9. And when we revisit Psalm chapter 2, we remember that is one of the Messianic Psalms. It is quoted more than once in the New Testament and the fulfillment is shown to us in those New Testament verses to be Jesus. It would thus appear that the man-child referred to here is none other than the Christ, Jesus, the Son of God. If we thus build upon that foundation, we might well note further that in verse 5, the remainder of that verse harmonizes so very well. For we notice the child was called up to God, a reference to his ascension to glory. Furthermore, to his throne. We remember that the prophecy of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 was this, verses 13 and 14, that when the Son would ascend through the clouds to the Ancient of Days, then He would be given dominion, a kingdom, power, might, and majesty. That's precisely what happened. When Jesus ascended to the Father in Acts chapter 1, in the very next chapter, He was given a kingdom. We call it the church. It is that eternal, everlasting kingdom spoken of on that occasion. And thus it would seem that the man-child is none other than Christ, Jesus, the Son of God. But let us look further. What then about the woman? We furthermore appreciate from verse 1 that again she has greatness surrounding her, clothed with the sun, moon beneath her feet, crown of stars upon her head. We do notice that there were 12 of these stars. Immediately, as we've seen earlier in the book, the number 12 seems to signify those matters religiously that have great influence from heaven itself. That is to say, the 12 tribes of the Old Testament, the 12 apostles of the New. It would thus seem that the woman represents the saints of God in any dispensation of time, either Old or New Testament. It is the case that out of the Old Testament character of the drama unfolded, Christ ultimately would come. God specifically preserved the children of Israel throughout all the days of their mistakes and sinfulness, and ultimately through them, the Christ child was born. Through, in fact, the, the tribe, if you remember, of Judah. In fact, Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. And when he was thus born, he would have been of those old ancient tribes of the character of ancient Israel. But that isn't quite all. We do notice the nature of something else about this dragon. It's time to do our best identifying him. This is the easiest. If you would jump with me very quickly to verse 9, we are told who the dragon is. We have no question about this one. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil. And Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Thus, we've identified the dragon here is none other than the devil himself. Now, can we proceed to try to make some sense about the nature of the meaning? What does it describe for us when it says that Satan, this dragon, desired to devour the child as soon as it was born? We remember that the devil, being the clever and subtle one that he was, tried more than once to extinguish the flame of the greatness of the Christ, didn't he? He had all the baby boys killed in Bethlehem at the time Christ was born, thinking that in that act he would also be able to snuff out the life of the one who is the Son of God. On more than one occasion, what about the nature of the temptations in Matthew 4? Here the tempter came before Jesus and three times tried his best to get Christ to sin. And upon so doing, he would have forfeited his capability of being a sinless sacrifice for every one of us we'd still be in our sins if the Savior had given in to any one of those temptations. Satan did his best to thus exterminate the power and might of the work and life of the Son of God, but he failed. Thanks be unto God, he failed. We notice in verse number 5, this child again lived here upon this earth, carried out the work that was given unto him to do, and then he was caught up into God ascended into the Father, and as the verse closes to his throne, again making reference to that greatness and dominion that he was given on that occasion of Acts chapter 2. As we consider the furtherance, however, of what's described in these passages, might we observe the interesting feature, again noted for us in verses 4 and 5. We see that the tail of this dragon drew a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. It would seem that that's a reference more clearly to what will begin in verse number 7. And hence, if that be the case, let us proceed to read verses 7 through 17, finishing the chapter and seeing what will transpire as we discuss the interesting details to be found here. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea! For the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle." that she might fly into the wilderness, unto her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Some more details are thus provided to us. We can also consider these and what follows. Very explicitly in verse number 7, we are given description of war in heaven. Furthermore, we can see from that description that Michael and his angels fought on the side of good. And furthermore, the dragon and his angels fought on the side of evil, or those opposed to them. As we see the character of this particular war, again, we might appreciate that though the book of Revelation is a somewhat symbolic book, of course, we nonetheless can appreciate this would appear to have a semblance of recognition of some kind of difficulty did occur in heaven at some point in perhaps the far distant past. For instance, in Jude, verse number 6, reference is made to difficulties when angels kept not their initial estate or their first estate. We also remember in 2 Peter 2, a similar reference is found. Furthermore, we remember even Job in the Old Testament reminded us that there, in perhaps long before his day, was still some difficulty associated with the character of angels who rebelled against God, against His authority, and kept not their initial estate. If that be the description of what takes place, we can be ever so thankful yet again that verse number 8 tells us that the dragon did not prevail. Satan was not the victor in that warfare. Rather, we are told that no more place for him was found in heaven, and as such, verse 9, that old dragon was cast out. Upon his rebellion, thus God was unwilling to suffer his continued presence, cast him out, if you will, and as such, might we know that may well be the significance of the third of the stars of heaven, for it was not only he, but a notice with me, that he and his angels were cast out. That third of the stars of heaven may be the symbolic reference to that number of Those followers or angels who sided with him and all of them were were cast out of heaven. That intrigues us all the more when we come to verses 10 and 11. When we notice rather interestingly that now is come salvation. For this one who accused our brethren has been defeated, has been cast out. And now we're told in that verse, the power of Christ is utterly to be appreciated and understood. That perhaps makes our spine tingle when we imagine the greatness of what's being described. We can easily see that though Satan is powerful, there is one more powerful than he. Satan has already been utterly defeated in the character of his being. He shall not ultimately be victorious. He has already been defeated. You and I may ask today about the significance then of the capability we have of defeating him May we never forget Revelation 12, verse 11. May we never forget that beautiful text. For notice, they overcame him. That is, the saints of God overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. There is an absolute three-pronged attack on Satan which he cannot defeat. It relies on the blood of Christ. For Christ is that beautiful Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world, John 1:29. Furthermore, the word of the testimony, the word of God. By this pattern, we have a foe that Satan can't beat. After all, didn't Jesus himself use the sword of the Spirit so very effectively? On three occasions when temptation came his way, every time he said, it's written, it is written, it is written. In Matthew chapter 4, the emphasis upon that three-word phrase cannot be overstated. It's written, and when you and I use the it is written of the Scriptures, we too shall be in a position untouchable to Satan. Do we not remember the psalmist who exclaimed in Psalm 119, verse number 11, Oh, the beauty of hiding the Word of God in our heart. Why? That we might not sin against Him. When you and I are thus tied on to the Word of God and it dwells within us, we are in a position in which Satan has at the very least a dramatic uphill battle. But notice one more thing, they loved not their lives unto the death. They didn't love this material world and all of its carnality more than they loved the Lord. If it meant their life, they would give it in defense of gospel truth. More than once in that original day when John wrote this, those saints of God, their lives were taken from them simply and only because they were Christians. Nero and Domitian alike, and later Trajan, would actually set fires to Christians and let their burning bodies light his gardens when he'd walk at night. Can you imagine a gruesome monster like that? And yet, that's the hatred he had for Christianity. Oh, may we appreciate the soundness of those early saints as they were willing, if called upon, to remain faithful even until the point of death. No wonder it was said in Revelation 2.10, Be thou faithful until death, and I'll give thee the crown of life. These points hasten us onward to the latter parts of this chapter. For we notice that verse number 12 begins by noting an opportunity for rejoicing. I would ask that you consider with me yet another picture. This is an artist's rendition of that war in heaven, Again, perhaps you can make out some of the features of it, but I think it's especially interesting to note there has been one who is cast out, and it's that same dragon that we saw in the picture a minute ago. The dragon cast out, and all of those who are his angels and those left behind are the glorious angelic figures such as Michael and the others who are victorious in that warfare. That picture perhaps reminds us that there's something else to be noted. Let us, in fact, return to that previous screen and look at some of the last features contained on it. Beginning in verse number 12, a sense of rejoicing, great relief at the defeat of Satan, but a woe was pronounced to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. That's a description in a figurative way of those who array their conclusions and their desires in line with Satan. They follow materialistic and carnal matters rather than turning their attention to the God of heaven and His Son, Christ Jesus. And indeed, isn't it a woe the Bible always pronounces upon them? As that verse closes, great wrath. Because notice, Satan even appreciates that he hath but a short time. What might the significance of that be? Satan knows what his final end will be. He knows he shall not be victorious. When the Son of God died sinlessly and was resurrected on that third morning, it was over for him. At that point, he had no greater power and anything left to overcome. And at that point, he was utterly and finally defeated. The greatness of that for you and me is thus to appreciate this. He hath but a short time... There were those various demons who on more than one occasion had said to Christ, for instance, Hast thou come to torment us before the time? They already knew that they were destined for torment, for eternal torment. And they were well aware that the time for it was coming. You see, Satan appreciates already the thoroughness and forcefulness. But did Satan throw up his hands and quit on that occasion? Let us read verse 13. When the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, it doesn't say that he threw up his hands and quit. It doesn't say he threw over everything and said, God, I've lost. It says he persecuted the woman. That woman had given birth, and remember, she symbolized, we said, the saints of God, and in this era, they'd be Christians. He turned his attention to persecute Christians. The greatness to be seen there, of course, as we've already noted a minute ago, how many of those early saints were forced to give their lives in defense of truth. Burned at the stake, burned alive, in various other ways, killed by lions quite often in the amphitheaters of the Roman Empire. All the while, though, we notice verse 14 reminds us, to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she's nourished for a time, times, and half a time. We can perhaps imagine that those wings that were able to carry her or those on which she would flee for a degree of protection, the sense of haste or hurriedness that would accord to not only the character of the Scriptures, but the beauty and power of God's presence by virtue of faith. And all the while, they remind us that that times, time, and half a time is yet one more reference to 1,260 years. Three different ways of saying the same thing. 42 months is 1,260 days, which is time, one year, times, two more years, and then half a year, three and a half years. Either way we look at that, <clears throat> we see that it's that period of great persecution upon the saints of God, that period when Rome dominated And the church was under such great difficulty. But John is going to move forward in that opportunity because we mustn't think that we cannot be subject to such difficulties by virtue of Satan today. For verse 15 says, The serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. What does the flood represent? Apparently a different tactical approach that Satan has used To persecute, to bring difficulties on the church. What might that expressly be? It's difficult to piece that together. My suspicion, and it's merely a theory, now please take that as my presentation, is the seriousness of the false doctrine that commenced after the Reformation movement. If that be true, then rather than direct difficulty related to threat upon physical life, There's false doctrine, false teaching, difficulties in all kinds of ways where other things besides biblical truth are taught, if that be the case. We notice in verse 16 that the earth did help the woman in some way. There was a restraining effect, at least for a while, that kept in check the difficulty of that flood. Perhaps that was the Roman Empire. When she finally crumbled, there was no longer any governmental force to maintain controls on religious teaching and once opened, we are now in the midst of hundreds, thousands of different denominations and the chapter so abruptly ends by reminding us one more time, the dragon was wroth with the woman. Again, that's the saints of God, the church in this era. And he went to make war with the remnant of her seed, that's you and me which keep the commandments of God may we thus never forget that those who are faithful to the word of God shall endure the difficulties of Satan for he will not rest until he has made every effort every effort to cause you and me to move aside from faithfulness in God to say all that is to say perhaps that we can look at another picture Here are those wings representing that church again that was able to fly to a degree of protection. And as we consider perhaps the finality of that which we've seen this evening, we can come to a quickness of the conclusions to be seen therein. The seventh trumpet was sounded in chapter 11. Upon that sounding, the day of of judgment was presented before us. And as we open chapter 12, we saw first a dragon a woman, a child, war in heaven. And we've seen through it all that Satan, though he attempted to take the life of the Christ, he was unsuccessful. But he still has not given up on causing you and me to be unfaithful. He continues to make war with the remnant of the woman's seed. Are you faithful tonight? Have you turned your life over to Christ? And do you clasp his hand carefully, closely, and always? If not you need to seriously think about the urgency and the difficulty of your situation and understand that the message of this book is the fact, ultimately and finally, that Satan has already been defeated. Jesus has already beaten him. If we tie on to the hand of Christ, he will aid us in victory over Satan as well. And one final day, when Satan's cast into the lake burning with fire and brimstone, we will be ushered into glory forevermore. Tonight, if you're not a member of the Lord's body, if you've never become a Christian, turn your life over to Him tonight as you believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His great name, be baptized for the remission of sins. If we could help you do that, we'd be happy to do so at this very moment. If you've done that but haven't been true to the One who loved you and the One who gave His life for you, come back to that first love. There's an audience filled with people who would be more than honored to pray on your behalf. And we'd be happy to know about your transformation in life so that we could be there as a source of strength for you. Tonight, if we could be of assistance to you in either of these ways, will you not let that be known and come even now while together we stand and while we sing?